0: Let's just pray a minute. God, thanks for today. Thank you for this uh, group. Uh, Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your word. Lord, we do ask that as we open your word together, that you would keep your promise, that uh, your word would not go forth uh, in vain, that it would bear fruit, that it would accomplish what you want it to accomplish. I ask that you would speak to each of us, encourage us, uh, convict us, strengthen us, uh, build our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, in a story, there is a beginning and a middle and an end. In the beginning, you're introduced to some of the main characters Um, the scene is set, you get some context for uh, what the story's about, where um, the people live. You move into the middle and conflict is introduced and the main characters are put into difficult situations. And then as you move through the middle, the main characters are put into even more difficult situations. And more difficult situations. And the more difficult the situation, the more the tension builds, the better the story. And then toward the end of the story, you get resolution to that tension. Uh, Something happens, there's victory, there's um, uh, um, good that comes out of evil. Um, The good guys win in the end. Or if it's a tragedy, everybody dies. Which, you know, depending on your worldview, could be everything comes out good in the end. But that's how stories work. And stories work that way because that's how life works. That's how life works. I'm the kind of person who likes stories that end happily ever after. My daughter, who's a writer, she likes tragedies. She likes sad stories. I don't know what we did wrong, but she... (laughs) She just has a different view. But, but I figure I get enough tragedy in real life, right? Like I have enough drama in my real life. I don't need that in the books I read. But she, she likes those kinds of stories. Uh, but, but I want to know, like, the good guy is going to win in the end. I want to know that good is going to triumph over evil. That's the kind of story I like. That's the kind of book I like to read. That's the kind of movie I like to see. But when you're in the middle, a really good book a really good movie, even if you know, even if there's certainty that at the end, everything's going to turn out okay, in the middle, it still builds that tension. And you still are kind of wondering, there's a piece of your mind that's thinking, is this going to be okay? Is everything going to work out in the end? That's what makes a good story. But in real life, we don't often want to admit that we live in the middle of the story. We want to live with certainty. We want to know houses will always appreciate. We want to know the economy will always recover. We want to know that our investments on Wall Street will always uh, increase in worth. We want to know that the Cardinals will always beat the Cubs. I I told Tom I couldn't come preach this morning if the Cubs won. I didn't know how I could show my face. (laughs) We want certainty, right? We want to know. And there are times, even as believers, even though we know the end, right? And we know, you know, we all get to heaven when we die. When we're living in the middle of the story, when we're living in the middle of that uncertainty, it can be really difficult. And we can ask the question, God, what are you doing? You can look at our country and say, God, what are are you doing? Sometimes in your family, you look at your kids and you're like, God, what are you doing? You look at the brokenness in our communities. God, what are you doing? What is God doing? If you've got a Bible, open it to Isaiah. Isaiah. The book of Isaiah it's uh, roughly in the middle of your bible. We're going to look at chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to ask the question, God, what are you doing because we live in the chasm of uncertainty. We live between the happy beginning and the happily ever after. Let's start reading in Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim means fiery one. So these are the fiery ones. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. and With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at the earth. Look at the world around us. Look at Afghanistan. Look at the tough parts of St. Louis. Look at the news. Look at the disunity of the church. Look at the ecological disasters around the world. Look at the famines and the wars and the droughts and the storms and ask yourself is the whole earth full of the glory of the Lord? What is God doing? What is God doing? We live in a time of great uncertainty. The good news for us is that Isaiah lived in a time of great uncertainty and wrote about it so that we can have a glimpse of what God is up to. He starts by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died. One commentator says, there hadn't been a king in Israel like Uzziah since Solomon. He was a godly king when godly kings were hard to come by. Israel had been kind of in and out of idol worship, rejecting the Lord, following the Lord. Uzziah followed the Lord. Uzziah's son, who reigned actually during Uzziah's life, Followed the Lord. But there was some question about what was going to come next. In the year that King Uzziah died, there was a lot of uncertainty. What was going to happen? Assyria in the north was already taking chunks out of the northern kingdom Israel. The southern kingdom Judah was wondering, are we next? How long until we start getting overtaken by the Assyrians or others? Times of uncertainty. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. The earthly King Uzziah, where was he? In the grave. The heavenly King, look at this royal language. I saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, his glory, his majesty filling the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. They flew around, singing, calling, yelling to one another Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We don't see it all the time, but the whole earth is full of his glory. Sometimes it's veiled to our human eyes, but the whole earth is full of his glory. What is God doing? We're going to discover that here in a minute. But we can know by faith that he's filling the earth with his glory. What is God doing? The Lord of hosts is ruling the universe. He's ruling the universe. He's securely seated on his throne. There are no pretenders, that can throw him off. Nothing in heaven or earth is a surprise to him. He is ruling the universe. Every single thing that happens, happens only because he has allowed it. Nothing that you're concerned about, nothing that you're scared about, nothing that you're worried about, nothing that you fear, nothing that could, might, what if, can happen unless the Lord of hosts Says that that's gonna be okay. And if we look at the New Testament, part of the reason for that is we know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. And so even those things that were meant for evil, He will turn around and work those out for good. God is in the redeeming business. And he's redeeming the evil things, the sicknesses, the, the uh, sins sinned against you, the tough times. He's redeeming those things. And sometimes we don't see those totally in this lifetime, but we will see those in the next life. Paul says the hard, the hard things that we experience now, the sufferings, the persecutions, all of that is just nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us on the other side. What is God doing? The Lord of hosts is ruling the universe. David, before he became king, knew that the Lord of hosts was ruling the universe. There was this enemy of the people, his name was Goliath, and the Philistine army and the Israelite army were lined up to go at it in battle one on one side of the valley, one on the other side of the valley. And every morning, Goliath would come out and he would taunt the people of Israel. And I've got to believe that King Saul and the mighty men were wondering, what is God doing? How do we stand up against these enemies of ours? They are going to wipe us out. And the way it worked back then is if you could have a champion, and then the other team, <laughs> the other army could have a champion, the two champions would go at it. And then whichever champion won, then that would be the army that won. So you didn't have to sacrifice all of these people. And so Goliath was the champion for the Philistines, and he stands up and says, Hey, bring out your champion. Let him face me. Come on. What are you, a wimp? You a sissy? Calling them names, right? Calling their God names. Day after day after day. And what's the champion doing? King Saul, what's he doing? He's quaking in his Durangos. Right? He's not willing to go out there. He should, as the king, he probably is the one who should go out. So here comes little David. He's a youth. He's the youngest kid in the family. He's the runt of the litter. And he comes to the front lines and he sees this and he says, yeah, this is a problem. This is really a problem. He starts to get mad. How dare this uncircumcised Philistine treat our God this way? Treat the armies of our God this way. And so what does he do? A uh, Long story, but in the end, he goes down to Sandy Creek and he gets some pebbles Well, probably stones. And he puts them in his messenger bag and he goes out to face Goliath and he swings the sling and he lets loose and his first stone goes right into Goliath's forehead. Knocks him down, knocks him out. David grabs his sword, cuts off his head. Battles all but over, the Israelites win. Now, why could David do that? Every other person was living in fear and uncertainty. But David saw something, that this wasn't just a battle between human armies. This was a battle between a man who was coming against the Lord of hosts, the king of Israel, the king above all kings, he understood that the Lord of hosts is ruling the universe. Look at how Isaiah puts this. I'm sorry. I've got... There you go. Now you can deal with it. All right. Look, look at how Isaiah says this. He contrasts the humanly king, human king, King Uzziah, with the heavenly king. The human king is in the grave. The heavenly king is seated on the throne. He contrasts the empty throne... With the occupied throne. He contrasts the earthly king with the heavenly king. High and exalted or low and in the earth. And so again and again he paints this picture of royalty. The Lord of hosts is ruling the universe. Lord of hosts means uh, the, the, the sovereign over all of heaven and earth. The sovereign over all of heaven and earth. He's ruling the universe. Our view of God determines how we react to uncertainty. That's the primary um, difference maker. Will we react with fear? Will we react with concern? Will we react with worry? Or will we we react confidently? The primary difference maker is our view of God. If we see God as he truly is, as the Lord of hosts, sovereign over all powers of heaven and earth, active and involved in our David, we can see the giants of our lives for what they are. They weren't, I mean, Goliath, he wasn't a cartoon giant, right? He was the real deal. And the giants in our lives, like, they're they're really, they're worth worrying about. They're big. Until you look at some pictures taken by the Hubble telescope and realize God just said the word and all of that. Existed. Maybe he can pay my rent. Maybe he can heal my disease. Maybe he can heal my relationship. Maybe he can do something about this crazy country we live in. Maybe he can do something about our giants. The Lord of hosts rules the universe. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house, that's the temple, was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen who? The king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the King, the Lord of hosts. What is the Lord doing? What is God doing? The Lord of hosts is ruling the universe. Number two, the Lord of hosts is forgiving the humble. He's forgiving the humble. What does he do? He says, woe is me. I am in trouble because I have seen the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, symbolizing purity. He touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah's response to saying the Lord of hosts was one of sheer terror. This is the common response in scripture when people see God. Sheer terror. Terror. Our God is an all consuming fire. Even the fiery seraphs can't stand to look on the holiness of God. They use two of their wings to cover their faces. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips, the things I say are unclean. And why does that matter? Because what comes out of our mouth is an indication of what's in our hearts. So a while back I was having a discussion uh, with some friends uh, at a, a gathering and we were talking about, um, about music um, that's played in public. And as a musician, you know, I've had lots of opportunities to play in clubs or, or coffee houses or whatever. And, and, and I started to talk about how, you know, it really bothers me when I'm asked to come play somewhere and I start playing, and, and like, it's just dinner music, you know, and people are are just talking and laughing and doing whatever. Like, they could just as soon play a CD or something. They, we still play CDs, right, sometimes? Yeah. So uh, so as I talked about that, I, my voice started to get a little bit louder, and I started to talk a little bit faster. and. And I realized, you know what, I'm really passionate about this. And my words were revealing, you know, what was in my heart that I, I really am kind of offended that, you know, someone would say, Hey, we want you to come play piano for this gig and you get there and you're playing piano and you're like, Why am I even here? And honestly, what's worse is when the church does that. Hey, just come, you know, play some worship songs while we eat dinner, or play some some songs before we get started, and nobody's paying attention to anything, and you know, you're engaged in Hopefully worship. Uh, You guys would never do that. But it revealed what was going on in my heart, right? So unclean lips reveal an unclean heart. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. He doesn't say, I'm a man of unclean lips, but I'm not as bad as this people who have even more unclean lips. What does he do? He identifies with his people. He identifies with the sinners. When he sees the Holy Lord of hosts, he understands that in comparison, he is just like all the other people. He cannot afford to be in the presence of God. He needs cleansing, he needs forgiveness, he needs redemption. And if the prophet Isaiah, who was God's chosen instrument to be his voice to his people, has that reaction, how much more should we have that reaction? Now, he's cleansed, right? Angel takes the coal from the altar. We can be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. The cross makes a way for us to be outfitted for the holiness of God. We don't have to be in terror of the holiness of God, of his majesty, of his all-consuming fieryness, Because we've been given white robes of righteousness. We've been outfitted for his presence. But, I wonder... If we have forgotten the attitude of Isaiah in identifying with the sins of his people, I really like the way that you guys pray for different things each week. You pray for your nation on kind of a rotating basis. Um, I have a friend who told me once, you know, we really need to hold our so- our society to a higher standard. I thought about that. I thought, is that what scripture says? That we're to judge those outside the church? Or does scripture say that we're to identify with sinners because we've been sinners? Are we to expect the ungodly to act righteously? Righteously? Or are we to pray that they will encounter the holy, living God? A big, big issue in our country right now is uh, the issue of sexual identity. It came up yesterday in the workshop. I- I've not ever struggled with homosexual feelings or, um, you know, my own sexual identity. I don't don't really understand that in terms of being able to relate to that. I've also never committed adultery. Knock on wood, everybody can be tempted. But Jesus says, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. James says, if you break One piece of the law, you've broken the entire law. I may not understand what it means to struggle with same-sex attraction or sexual identity, but I know what it is like to struggle with the temptation of lusting after a woman. Do I identify with the sins of my people? Do I say, I'm a man who knows what it's like to struggle with sin in my life? Therefore, I can appreciate that you struggle with sin in your life, and how much more if you don't know Jesus? Or do I stand at a distance and essentially throw stones? The Lord of hosts forgives the humble. And I just have to be really honest, and this is me asking this question. I wonder if there are people in our world who would humble themselves before the Lord of hosts if it weren't for the people who call the Lord of hosts their God being so judgmental and hypocritical. If all we do is see them as sinners and relate to them as sinners, rather than seeing them as people that God loves, people that we are called to love, people who we can relate to, because we know what it's like to be sinners. Even now that we're saints, even now that we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we still struggle with sin. I still don't live up to God's standard. I don't even live up to my own standard. I quit years ago making New Year's resolutions because, you know, if I made it to March, that was like a record. I know what it's like to not live up to the standard. And so instead of throwing stones, maybe what I should be doing is humbling myself and praying, God, Reach out to them. Help them to see your love. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. And I get that. My heart understands that. I search for satisfaction in all kinds of crazy things. None of which are as, as um, sensational, maybe, as sexual identity and same-sex issues. But I know what that feels like. To try to look for satisfaction in things other than Jesus. Lord, bring repentance. Help them to see the glory of the gospel. Help them to see the glory of the Lord of hosts. Help them to see and help me to live in loving proximity with them and engage in relationship and loving friendship with them, showing forth the love of Christ who died for them and sacrificed himself on their behalf. The Lord is forgiving the humble. Isaiah 44, he says this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Who does that sound like? The first and last? Yeah, Jesus. Besides me, there's no other God. I have blotted out your transgressions, like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And I wonder if the church, especially in America, but in other places of the world too, if we don't need to return to the Lord and humble ourselves for our judgmental hypocrisy and ask for forgiveness and ask, Lord, how do you want us to love in your name? Number three. The Lord is forgiving the humble. The Lord is ruling the universe. Uh, Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. What's your immediate response when you realize that you have been forgiven for all of the heinousness of your sin? The Bible says whoever's forgiven much loves much. Right? When we think we've only been forgiven like we're mostly pretty good and God just kind of dusted us off a little bit maybe took a lint roller to our sins you know we may not love that much. But if we understand the depth of depravity from which we've been saved we love much. And we respond with here am I. Send me. That was Isaiah's immediate response. Here am I, send me. And that's such a great missionary verse, right? So I'm a missionary. I love that verse. Here am I, send me. Who will go for us? Here am I, send me. But we stop at that verse. But what does verse 9 say? So he says, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The Lord of hosts is sending the willing. But are we willing to go where he is sending? How many converts did Isaiah have in his life? How many converts did Jeremiah have in his life? How many people were still committed to Jesus after his crucifixion? You know, Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, mentions all these great people, the things that happened to them, And then it's got these people that, they didn't get anything. Like they were tortured, they were martyred, they are sawn in half. What if God is saying, well, you go someplace really, really hard and be seen in the world's eyes as totally unsuccessful? That's what he did to Isaiah. The Lord is sending the willing, but are we willing to go to the hard places? Are we willing to go and not see fruit right away? In fact, not see fruit for a really long time. In fact, maybe not see fruit until the next generation. I roomed once at a missions conference with a guy who was a missionary in a part of China where the Uyghur people are. The Uyghur people uh, are Muslim and very difficult to reach. And he was ministering to them and was seeing zero fruit. Zero fruit. And I asked him about that. I'm like, what keeps you going? He says, well, one of two things is happening here. Either God is planting seeds through us that are going to reap a harvest and people are going to get saved at some point along the line. Or what he's doing is allowing them to harden their hearts and he's using us as a witness against them. So when judgment comes, he is known as righteous. I was like, whoa, that's different. What if that's what God is doing? It's what God did with Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. He revealed himself to Pharaoh in an amazing way, through an amazing set of circumstances. When Aaron and Moses witnessed God's greatness to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart, but God used that for his own glory. Would you be willing year after year after year after year to live, was it Northwest China where the Uyghur people are Yeah, in kind of a difficult terrain, difficult people, difficult language. Would you be willing to live in Jefferson County and build relationships with people that other Christians don't wanna touch with a 10-foot pole for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to leave the comforts of the United States and the freedoms that we have here to go to Central Asia? maybe risking your life or the life of your family the lord of the hosts is sending the willing but are we willing to go where he's sending us so if you join the military anybody been in the military go cool people you join the military who gets the toughest assignments in the military the ones who volunteer, the ones who volunteer yeah Uh, Is there kind of a category of people? They have the toughest training, get the toughest assignments. Special forces. We could call it a lot of things. I'm going to call it the special forces. Somebody said Marines. My friend would like that, but my Navy friend wouldn't like that. (laughs) Yeah, the special forces, right? The SEALs, the Rangers, uh, Marine Recon, yeah special forces they get the toughest assignments right and they have the by far the hardest training very difficult training i've read about navy seal training and what they put people through both physically and psychologically and my word if you find yourself in a really difficult place maybe it's because god sees you as spiritual special forces Maybe he's training you for some really difficult places. Or maybe he's been training you and now you are in a really difficult place. See, we have this funny Americanized version of Christianity that we often believe, which is if we follow God, things will go well with us. And in this world, that's not how it always works. In fact, a lot of times, if we follow God, things go really bad for us. The Apostle Paul, just read his resume. Beaten, shipwrecked, in dangers on land and sea, in dangers from the Gentiles and the Jews, imprisoned, ultimately beheaded. The special forces. Think about David facing the giant. Think about Moses, called to lead a stubborn and obstinate people and then never actually make it into the promised land. Think about Jesus, tortured and killed on trumped-up charges. Are we willing to go where the Lord is sending us? Are we willing to endure what God is allowing? What is God doing? Our view of God determines how we react to hardship. The Lord is sending the willing. the movie The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her companions go to um, Oz, no to the Emerald City, right, where Oz is. And, and they have some things that they need. Dorothy just wants to go home. The lion wants heart courage. Courage, I guess. The tin man wants a heart. The scarecrow wants a brain. The lion. Did they goof it all up? Okay. I could if you want me to. I could goof it all up. So they make it to the Emerald City. Uh, they aren't Trying to get in to get a a meeting with Oz. Finally, they make it into Oz. And Oz is, like, he's the thing, right? I mean, big, booming voice and smoke and lights and scariness. And while he's basically telling them, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. I can't help you. You know, go away. Little dog Toto scampers over and pulls the curtain back. And here's this little man behind the curtain. The great and mighty Oz revealed for who he really is. There's a curtain that separates this physical world that we spend most of our life in with the spiritual realm. If we could have that curtain pulled aside for just a moment like Isaiah did and see God for who he is... We would have the opposite experience that they had seeing Oz. Right? If we could pull the curtain back between this world and the next, we would fall on our faces in repentance. We would be overwhelmed with the glory of God. We would see every single thing that we've ever experienced, are experiencing, ever could experience, in a totally different light. Because the Lord of hosts is on his throne, Ruling the universe. The Lord of hosts is forgiving the humble. And the Lord of hosts is sending the willing. Who needs to hear this? Who do you need to share this with? I hope that this is penetrating your heart, but I know that it will, it will stay there more if you share it with someone else. Who do you know who's living in uncertain times? Who's trying to navigate the middle of the story and maybe wondering, what is God doing? What is He up to? Is He even here? Where is He? I want you to take just a minute right now and write down a name the name of a person that you will share these three truths with this week that the Lord is ruling the universe the Lord is forgiving the humble the Lord is sending the will. and I pray that as you share your faith will be increased as will theirs and you will be able to live more confidently in the midst of uncertainty God, thank you so much that you are on your throne. And Lord, we just see bits and pieces of what you're up to and what you're doing. But Lord, increase our faith. May we love like you love. May we believe the truth. May that truth continue to set us free. And may we share the truth with others and see our lives and the lives of others around us changed forever, in Jesus' name, amen.